Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. How's everybody's apartments going? You know, <laughs> great question. I was thinking about this. We always we always have like a few minutes of up at the top where we just sort of you know uh, you know chat, and uh, it's I I had noticed in doing Zoom parties with my friends and things like that where you try to do more FaceTimes while we're in quarantine that everyone's just sort of in their apartment. So you sort of say like, what's yeah. up? What's new? And you're like, well, uh, nothing, literally nothing. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I made breakfast this morning. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like, what do we talk about now? I don't know, guys. I, I said before we started recording, I mean, I can tell you like what's going on with my upstairs neighbors and the different types of noises that are emanating up there, but that's not interesting. They have like, they got a little kid who I think is working on his like macho man, Randy Savage flying elbow drops off the couch or something if the oh, noise yeah. from upstairs is any indication but yeah like you say bill this is this is what reality is now the only thing that I we have also, in, the, the common collective experience i would also like to note that uh we 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 clearly promised last week that we would not have all of our shows be <laughs> only about the coronavirus and here we are guys we're about to reel off Four straight coronavirus stories. So um, we I know, assure you that, I that is still our plan, but you know, it's it's the news. It's what's happening. I will say about the the plan and how much corona is in our show today. Uh, we are hitting a lot of different buckets, though. So we're touching on a lot of different areas. Yeah, like the coronavirus is impacting, you know, the law and lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. So. We have a great guest later on. We're going to talk to Suzanne Moniak. She's our immigration reporter. And she's going to run down how immigration courts aren't closing the same way a lot of other courts are. And we're going to sort of talk about why that is. But uh, I think that up top, it would be helpful just because there is this deluge of <laughs> of litigation that is happening yeah. over directly linked to coronavirus. I think Alex and I were talking about this right in the earliest days and and we both were like worried that you know the courts were going to shut down there wasn't going to be anything to write about and then we're like oh no there's going to be a ton of litigation over this. Yeah, yeah. It was like somebody's getting sued. Turns out a lot of somebody's as we can start, right. probably start to run down now. So, I you know Perhaps unsurprisingly, the the first one that we're going to talk about is that it, one of the first big battles here is over insurance um, and specifically how it covers uh, businesses that are affected by the pandemic. So the big picture here is that, you know, every restaurant and bar and yoga studio and gym and every other business in the country has insurance um, to help get them through unforeseen interruptions of business. Um, sure. Well, it's it's sort of. Uh, this is a, you know, this is a gigantic, gigantic, unforeseen interruption of business. Yeah. But the key is that insurance companies say that those policies don't cover pandemics and, and that they were only intended to cover physical damage to properties. Um, many of the policies contain explicit exclusions when it comes to disease or epidemics or whatever. And um, the insurance companies say that, that you know, regardless, that none of these policies were were priced to take this into account, that they weren't priced to cover this kind of thing, that if if they were, that the companies wouldn't have offered them. Let this be a lesson to policy writers, you know, whenever we ever come out of this, you know, to, to, to account for certain new contingencies. But yeah. Right. It makes so much sense to me that there's going to be legal battles about this because from the insurance company perspective, 
they probably think through, oh, if a tornado hits, it's going to hit one area and we're a nationwide company. So we've just sure. sort of distributed our risk there. But this pandemic is nationwide. It's global. So right. they haven't distributed any of that risk. Right. So we're already seeing a bunch of cases being filed over this. Um, uh, just to name a few, uh, a group of Native American casinos in Oklahoma filed against their insurer. Um uh, the celebrity chef Thomas Keller, the, who runs the the French Laundry out in, uh, in in Napa, his restaurant group filed a similar case. Um, a Florida sports bar, just like we, we're going to see many more of these as as time goes by. Um, there's a lot of different things that that are going to be sort of in dispute in these cases, but I thought it was interesting that the Keller case is one of one of the things that they're claiming is that there's this separate. Um, uh, civil authority provision in their coverage mm-hmm. uh, 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 contract that um, it, it it specifically mandates that the insurer cover for um, closures that are decreed by government authorities. So how these different sort of, you know, the, the, the insurance company is going to say, look, we didn't want this to cover pandemics, but, you know, there's obviously going to be all sorts of other disputes over what other aspects of, of your insurance deal um, covers something like this and, and how yeah. the sort of, it, you know, the it's it's at root a pandemic, but it's also a government action and it's all sorts of other things. Um, one other thing that I should mention before we get off insurance is that um, we'll probably also see lawsuits filed um, if if state and federal lawmakers start to take action to force insurers to to uh, pay sure. out on these deals. Um, there's been talk of legislation that would sort of retroactively change the rules to require that they cover this kind of stuff, regardless of what's in the contract. Um, and the insurance industry, perhaps unsurprisingly, has has not responded well to that and has said they have takes. Such- they have some takes. <laughs> They have they have constitutional takes and, uh, yeah. and say that it would be unconstitutional to pass that that kind of thing. Um, so uh, I, that would certainly be another type of insurance lawsuit that we would see here. So I know we have a lot of other buckets to cover. Um, one of the big ones that I think most people would have guessed would be um, some consumer suits. What are we seeing on that front? Yeah, I mean, you you see this many things being canceled and postponed and yada 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 and it's no surprise that um the way that that all happens is going to lead to litigation um uh a bunch of gyms have been sued 24-hour sports club or 24-hour fitness new york sports club la fitness have all been hit with class actions claiming that they kept auto charging your membership fees even after uh uh even after they shut down or should have known that it was going to cover a period where they were going to be shut down um united airlines was sued for for not giving refunds for canceled flights i thought this was a good one uh the university of arizona was sued for continuing to collect certain fees dealing with room and board and and other uh connected fees um stubhub which is the the ticket reselling platform uh they're facing a lawsuit saying that that um, you know when when people used their their platform that they were guaranteed that um, uh, if you bought tickets and then something went wrong that you would get your your money back in cash um, but that now that yeah. they're only offering uh, you know credits to be used for the service look I will I will keep my ear to the ground on that one I didn't get to go to the Caroline Rose show at Brooklyn Steel on March 25th <laughs> so I'm curious to we see all- how that shakes out. We all faced heartbreak, Alex. I missed a Pearl Jam show that was supposed to be right around my birthday. I was I very know, upset no. about it. Um, well, the, 
the StubHub thing is very interesting because it's um, they sort of say that this kind of risk that you know that that StubHub you know it's a big unforeseen pandemic, but that StubHub structurally wasn't was particularly problematic because it they pay out the the sellers uh, directly before the event takes place. And, you know, in a normal given uh, situation, maybe that results in a few events getting canceled and they have to pay them out. Here, StubHub is left holding this bag and the lawsuit basically says they've now passed that along to uh, to the end user. Um, one other lawsuit I think I would mention that was particularly sort of unsurprising that it was filed um, and sort of sticking in the StubHub vein is um, – uh, there's the Lightning in a Bottle Music Festival out in California that was scheduled for Memorial Day. Uh, it was canceled. Um, anything sure. you know in May is is for the most part canceled. Um, and the organizers have just flatly refused to give anyone their money back, saying that it all been spent on the preparations for the event, and maybe we'll have an event later in the year, um, uh, and and you'll get to go to that. But uh, so they were pretty quickly sued, saying that uh, that that they they need to offer refunds. Music festivals, such tricky business. It's got like some Firefest vibes there. Yeah, yeah. We're all um, living in like kind of a kind of a collective Firefest now when you really are. think about right. it. But um so that's I mean those are a couple of the big, you know, broad strokes of things where we've seen there's all I mean there's there's no we could make a whole show out of this if we wanted to. Why don't we talk about a couple others just quickly? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's on Monday we saw the first, um, or what people believe to be the first uh, wrongful death case uh, filed by the family of an Illinois Walmart employee. Uh, they sued Walmart for uh, wrongful death, saying that lacks safety standards and cleanliness rules and everything else had caused uh, the worker to become fatally infected. So that's that's a very interesting one, just from the perspective of you know folks are still having to go to these retail stores to keep them open and um, wh- what you know what the responsibility is for for the the employers and 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 that kind of thing. Um, and then on Tuesday we saw uh, a class action dealing directly with some of the relief efforts that Washington has passed. Um, there's the part of the big relief package was three hundred something billion dollars in um, small business relief loans that they're going to be doled out by by private banks. Um, uh, there's a case that's been filed against Bank of America saying that Bank of America is sort of unfairly restricting the, giving out those loans to its own existing yeah. customers and then was excluding people who use other banks. So um, that's an interesting thing that I, I, I'm sure we'll see more challenges to the relief efforts and how the relief efforts are are being doled out. Um, but as yeah. Alex said, there there is just so much going on here uh, that you know, retailers suing malls, false advertising lawsuits over fake cures, security lawsuits against all sorts of companies for not properly predicting and then disclosing the risks of this. Um, like yeah. everything else with this, it's just so sprawling that it's almost hard to wrap your your mind around it. Um, but we will <laughs> we will do our very best to to do so in the months and perhaps years ahead. Yeah, well, and we, just, yeah. just as a reminder for people, all of our coronavirus coverage of these types of suits is outside our paywall, so people can check it out and follow along with what's going on. I um I did a quick check to see how many of those kinds of stories we've written since the beginning of March. It's around 1,500, so <laughs> we've got a lot going on here at Law360, but I think that's good. People know where to come to follow these these developments. For Definitely. sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, as Bill had laid out, we... Many of those suits are just kind of getting on their feet, and we will see what kind of path they take through the courts. 
However, uh, this week, we also saw our very first Supreme Court decision that is stemming from the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, the justices declined to extend an absentee voting deadline in Wisconsin during the pandemic. They basically said that a lower courts, the, the lower court made a decision to allow more more time to file absentee ballots, um, and then that created sort of unnecessary confusion, like mere days away from election day. This drew a lot of a lot of scrutiny as the um, you know sort of social distancing collided with going in person to vote. So we have a pandemic and big elections. Who would have thought that that would cause problems? Yeah, I mean, it turns out this, yeah, the, the, the thing where we're not supposed to gather in large groups presents problems when you have to go and cast votes. Um, yeah. Not only is there a presidential primary going on, but Wisconsin has a lot of very closely watched races, including um, a race for its state Supreme Court. That's an elected position in the state of Wisconsin. Um, and many down-ballot races that are obviously always very important. Um, and so that gave rise to this suit, which is uh, a very clean Supreme Court suit name. It's it's uh, DNC versus RNC, uh, which, I mean, throw out the record books when these two lock horns. I mean, <laughs> no love lost at all. Um, but like I say, faced with this this basic dilemma of global pandemic going on and people not wanting to go in person to vote, Democrats in Wisconsin, in, in Wisconsin moved to, de- they, they initially filed a suit to delay the election until June. The district court that heard the case said it couldn't do that, but the judge did say, I will allow people who are voting absentee more time to do so. He gave them six additional days after election day to file their absentee ballots, and he did that because on account of any number of COVID-related disruptions to the mail and a larger-than-normal number of requests for absentee ballots. Um, The case goes to the Seventh Circuit. They say, that sounds good to us. Uh, but the Supreme Court hit the brakes this week on Monday, the day before the election in Wisconsin, which was on Tuesday, of course, uh, in a very short, unsigned opinion and five, four, five, four conservative majority of the court basically declined to grant this extended absentee voting period, saying it was just too dramatic of an intervention at such a late stage of the election. The, the, the basic quote from the majority went like this. Extending the date by which ballots may be cast by voters, not just received by the municipal clerks, but cast by voters for an additional six days after the scheduled election day fundamentally alters the nature of the election. I think it's so interesting. The, um, you know, this is obviously such a sweeping issue. It deals with our with the <laughs> basic issues of our democracy. But um, the court, yeah. if you read it, it seemed like they really tried to make this into a very narrow issue, a very small sort of technical thing. They say that a couple of times in what is a short opinion. It's like four pages, the majority. And like I say, it was per curiam, unsigned. Um, so, yeah, I mean, rather than examine this broader question about election safety and public health in the midst of this crazy circumstance, they focus on a narrow couple of points. They basically say, they basically focus much of the opinion on the power of a single federal judge to make this kind of intervention. They keep saying that the DNC, in bringing the case, did not ask for the absentee extension. They, they, they had initially asked for the entire election to be delayed, and the judge just kind of came up with this six-day extension on his own. Uh, the conservative majority says that that runs afoul of a standard in 2000 uh, that comes from a 2006 case called Purcell v. Gonzalez, which says that federal courts should, and this is a quote, ordinarily not alter the election rules on the eve of an election. Now, 
If you're uh, like me, they said the word ordinarily. Well, this yeah, is anything I mean, if but that. Well, yeah, when you re- if, if if you read that, it doesn't say they can never alter the rules of the election right. on the eve. If uh, not uh, uh, now, on the eve of the election. Well, the the majority doesn't address that at all. Um, they just sort of say that that is the standard, and they think this violates that standard. Um, but they had a clear eye out for some of the criticism that they did that they thought they would and eventually did catch. They went out of their way to sort of say that they are not opposed to the idea of making electoral processes safer in the face of a health crisis or anything like that. Just sort of like preemptively, they 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 had this um, rather descriptive quote. The court's decision on the narrow question before the court should not be viewed as expressing an, opi- an opinion on the broader question of whether to hold the election or whether reforms or modifications in election procedures in light of COVID-19 are appropriate. This point cannot be stressed enough. So they clearly, they know what we are talking about here in saying there are extraordinary circumstances. We consider this to be a technical question. I mean, we know the world's on fire. We get it. But the question we had was just, can this be read under a statute this certain way? I mean, that seems a little... Uh, let's go with tone deaf for the current moment in time. I would imagine the dissents to this opinion had something to say about that. Yeah. Um, the, the dissent came to us from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it's so interesting when like really memorable dissents. I mean, she, she, she basically she basically rejects the entire premise of the idea that it's a mere technicality, which is unsurprising uh, for the reasons that we are talking about. She basically says that the idea of just not allowing more time for absentee ballots in this circumstance results uh, basically is um, is tantamount to quote massive disenfranchisement and it's such an interesting piece of writing by her also very short mere couple of pages you should definitely read it it was very widely read this week anyway rather than wade into the weeds that the majority kind of foregrounds in its opinion she basically just puts forward a pretty straightforward case about the appropriateness of accommodating voters. So keep in mind what we were just talking about, about the standard that I said before from that 2006 case that says that courts should not ordinarily intervene in elections so close to elections, right? She tackles that straight on. She says, quote, the court's suggestion that the current situation is not substantially different from an ordinary election boggles the mind. Uh, She explained that there's like 150,000 absentee ballot requests that have been made since last week, and that you know, that that's that the state is facing a huge backlog. They've been very public about that, and that's before you even account for like actual delivery delays stemming from COVID nineteen. She said um, uh, uh, another quote from the from the 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 opinion that that gets or from the dissent that gets at this. Under this court's order, tens of thousands of absentee voters are unlikely to receive their ballots in time to cast them. Will be left quite literally without a vote. So the idea um, of you know, not intervening too close to an election and sowing uncertainty really didn't hold water with her when the Supreme Court parachutes in literally the day before and reverses something uh, that a lower court did, you know, mere days prior. It's so interesting, the uh, sort of the echoes of the partisan gerrymandering ruling that we saw last term, that this idea of, you know, depending on who you ask, and, and, and a lot of critics would say, this is a enormous thing that, that, you know, that should be within sort of the, the, uh, the prerogative of, of, of the court. 
and and yet here we are saying it's just not a place that we can we can jump into and we can deal with uh it's you know it's it's not that we're saying you shouldn't you should do it it's just this is not the kind of issue that we can deal with yeah i mean they they their thing and and they say it, they 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 hint at it a couple of times is the uh, you know, they 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 never want to intrude, right? They don't want to be too intrusive, even if it's you know on a on a question like this. It was like we have the small question of whether a single judge can do this thing. Uh, the majority has made their feelings known, as has the minority. Um, as far as like what to take away from it, uh, the the election uh went forward as as planned with no uh absentee extension. I haven't seen a lot of hard numbers in terms of turnout. Um, but the voting picture in Wisconsin was. Uh, uh, fairly chaotic. Long lines happen at elect at polling stations under ideal circumstances in the United States. Um, but Milwaukee, for example, um, is one of the most populous regions of Wisconsin. Tra- tr- uh, traditionally, they have uh, about 180 polling locations to accommodate their 300,000 residents. On Tuesday, they had five. So five locations to accommodate 300,000 registered voters because worker people who work at the polling stations d- like didn't want to come out because there's a pandemic right. going on. Um, created very long lines, lines made physically longer by people doing their best to respect social distancing, which was just kind of an odd visual that you saw popping up all over the place. Anyways, like I say, this, this um, pandemic has coincided with an election year. I can imagine there, there various states and various both Republican and Democratic committees are doing their best to try and figure out what is going to happen with all of these scheduled election days. I can imagine that this is going to bubble up uh, and only get messier from here. coronavirus pandemic has swept across the nation, many courts have closed their doors to prevent the spread of the virus. But immigration courts have taken an ad hoc approach to their closures, a choice that many attorneys and former judges have called chaotic, irresponsible, and potentially negligent. Here with us today to explain what's going on in these courts is our senior immigration reporter, Suzanne Maniak. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Oh, so we obviously all know we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have lots of courts around the nation that have shut their doors to try to keep people socially distanced and keep people healthy. But that's not exactly what's going on in immigration courts. Can you tell us more about the situation there? Um, Well, yeah, as you mentioned, the immigration courts have taken a more piecemeal approach to closures. Uh, The immigration courts are not independent like federal and state courts are. Um, They're run by the Department of Justice and immigration judges are DOJ employees. But despite being run by one agency, they are closing courts sort of on a court by court basis based on when there's a coronavirus case or an instance of exposure in the courthouse. Um, And it's not just sort of a, uh, a hypothetical uh, concern we're talking about here. There have been actual sort of documented instances of, of coronavirus infections within the four walls of these courts. Uh, what have we seen? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the Department of Justice has not been publicly tracking the coronavirus cases. However, the Immigration Judges Union has. And 
At this point, for example, we've confirmed that an immigration judge, a court staffer, and an attorney who appeared at the Varick Street Court in New York City have all been confirmed diagnosed with the coronavirus. There have been nine confirmed COVID-19 cases among corrections officers that bring detainees to and from the courthouses in upstate New York. And an immigration lawyer in Atlanta had tested positive a day after appearing in a Atlanta immigration court. Um, I guess I should clarify, a Department of Homeland Security trial attorney um, tested so, positive for coronavirus after appearing in an Atlanta immigration court. So, Suzanne, it seems to me with that backdrop, a lot of these courts would be shutting their doors and just doing things via video conference or on the phone, things that other courts are doing. Is that happening? And especially you brought up New York City. I mean, we're the hot spot in the outbreak. Are they still open? All three New York City immigration courts are open for filings and in the case of the Varick Street Court, also for hearings for immigrants in detention. A lot of these courts are using video conferencing technology. Um, it sort of depends on the court. Some of them have standing orders allowing it. Others have judges that have individually allowed it. Um, it's a little bit on a case-by-case basis. And the case-by-case basis that your story laid out is creating a little bit of more than a little bit of chaos and confusion as these policies are administered. You talk to people who were talking about closures and changes to court operations being done through tweets that maybe weren't always in sync with official statements on the websites. Give us the picture there. Yeah. So essentially what ends up happening is that on Twitter the night before or sometimes even the morning of like an hour after the court would have opened, there's an announcement on Twitter that the court is closed for the day. It's unclear whether it'll be closed tomorrow, too. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, so, yeah, you could say it's definitely creating chaos and confusion because attorneys don't know if they're going to need to show up to court that day or the next day or the day after that. And they don't know if they need to be checking Twitter at 11 p.m. on a weeknight for that kind of announcement. Um, they do have a Web page now that's been up and running for about two weeks now that they've been updating. But the updates are still coming fairly last minute. So how many courts are we talking about, Suzanne, in total? I mean, I know that they're all run under the DOJ umbrella, so you'd think they could just do a blanket closure in certain states even, um, but it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. So how many different locations are we talking about with a variety of different choices? There are 69 immigration courts across the country. Um, As of today, April 9th, uh, six of them are fully closed and 18 are fully open. Um, The remainder are open for the limited purpose of accepting filings and uh, holding hearings for detainees when applicable. Um, One of the reasons that we obviously thought that your story was so interesting is that this is a time where, you know, broadly, generally things are closing down. And these are sort of high volume areas of, you know, of legal disputes where people are coming in and out all the time. And as you just laid out, many of them are remaining open. You talked to a lot of attorneys for this story, um, and everybody should read it, like all the coronavirus coverage. It's a, it's in front of the paywall. Um, do they have a sense of why it's being handled this way? I mean, obviously, this is a very politically charged area of the law. Um, but did they are did, did any sort of theories or a thesis emerge among the people you talked to about why the situation is being handled the way it is? Yeah, I mean, some attorneys definitely question whether or not it is political. It's an election year, and there's some speculation that perhaps the Trump administration doesn't want deportation numbers to be very low, which could be the case if we completely shut down immigration court hearings um, and just completely cease the courts from running. The Department of Justice has consistently said that it takes the safety and well-being of its employees very seriously, and it has highlighted the true concern that for people in detention to have their hearings canceled, that does raise some due process issues, um, whether or not I should keep them in detention is a whole other question. Um, Right. 
but yeah, I mean, there's definitely a question as to whether it, it's political or not. And it's it's hard to say. I mean, you've outlined for us that a number of officials within the judicial system, um, everybody from DHS officers to actual attorneys have contracted coronavirus. Do we have any sense of whether or not that's spread because they're in court or do we are we just unable to tell at this point? I mean, to the extent that you can never be 100 percent sure how somebody contracted the coronavirus. But um, the way that immigration courts are structured uh, certainly makes them breeding grounds for a virus like this. There's crowded waiting areas outside the courtroom so that even if an immigration judge limits the number of people that could be in their courtroom and, you know, socially distances everyone sitting in the benches, there's a waiting area outside where everyone else is pushed into. There's elevators, there's bathrooms, there's communal spaces. Um, These aren't huge places um, oftentimes. And I mean, just because, you know, having somebody be there in that waiting area that has coronavirus that you're also in would absolutely put you at risk. And also, I mean, it's true, too, that these are, I think Alex said this before, they're high volume, right? So a detention hearing itself can be really quick. So they push through a lot in a day. Yeah. So initially, um, one of the actually one of the early things that the Justice Department did do that attorneys have praised is that it fairly quickly suspended um, master calendar hearings for those who are not in detention. And those are hearings where it's a preliminary hearing where you determine, you know, scheduling and dates for the remainder of the proceedings. And they'll run a lot at once. There might be dozens of people there at one time, you know, running um, running each person yeah. one by one to schedule for their proceedings. So those were fairly quickly suspended. But those were definitely, definitely breeding grounds for the virus. That was a concern when those were happening in early March. So as the bar adjusts to this reality of, um, you know, like I say, ad hoc court closures, sometimes the night before, sometimes the morning of, how are they handling it? Are they going in? Are they asking for delays? I mean, what is the sort of temperature of the bar on how best to proceed in kind of a, you know, to say the least, a delicate situation? Yeah. So attorneys tell me that they're sort of preparing for cases as if they're going to happen, um, knowing that perchance the court might close. And even if the court is closed that day, if it's potentially a one day closure and you've got a hearing tomorrow, you should be ready to do it, even though there might be a 9 a.m. tweet that says, hey, the court's closed today. So, I mean, attorneys are trying to be as prepared as they can. Um, And yes, some of them are requesting continuances or requesting that their hearings be postponed, but those don't have to be granted. It's up to the discretion of the judge. Um, And in some cases, uh, one issue attorneys have flagged for me is that while in many cases they can video conference into these hearings, as can their clients, a few courts like in Boston and Buffalo, New York, for example, have issued standing orders limiting the ways that attorneys can object to evidence if they call in. Um, And so for some cases, when you're uh, dealing with a person's merits hearings, like hearing on the merits of their immigration claim, that attorney may not want to waive any ability to object to evidence by calling in. It could be unfair to their clients. So that's all things that they have to be mindful of. So, Suzanne, I know you talked to a lot of people for this story, and um, I have a little bit more of sort of a just a human question here, which is how do people sound that are having to face the idea of going into courtrooms during this pandemic? Because um, I think all of us, especially here in New York, are feeling very nervous about our day to day activities, even just going to the grocery store, which you kind of can't avoid. So are people feeling scared and nervous about having to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think people are definitely scared. People are also frustrated and angry. Um, You kind of hear a variety of responses. Uh, I mean, between some of the people I spoke to, there was a single father who was concerned that if he got sick, there'd be no one to care for his seven-year-old. 
There was also a person, a man whose daughter was on a study abroad program who came home from Europe and needed to be quarantined, but he was supposed to go to court. Um, you know, he was worried about infecting his client and then having his client bring that into an immigration detention center. So, I mean, people are worried for themselves, but they're also worried for others and they're worried for their clients. And it's just kind of a ethical dilemma that they're really having to, to face at this time. That was already a very difficult time. Thanks for bringing this one to us, Suzanne. I think it's a little known area when everybody thinks everything's closed that we're having these kind of problems. So really appreciate you explaining it. Thanks again for having me. our show is something offbeat and we're sticking with coronavirus news this time yeah we're uh we're talking i think this story makes sense as a bunch of people in our 30s who spent the first few uh maybe week the first week or so of this pandemic trying to everyone talking to their parents you know trying to say look you're the you're the most at risk group here we really need you to stay inside uh (laughs) this is a this is a story about a uh a, a man in his 50s not abiding by the uh, by the, the the social distancing rules. Uh, while we're aging this conversation, I would like to point out that I'm no longer in my 30s. Oh just wow! Oh, embarrassing! Wow! 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 Sadness, do you want to just guys. start? Do you want to just leave right now, but, Bill? I mean, you, you're you're on the hook for doing the story. <laughs> I'm going to take really off. Yeah, outed me there. Uh, uh, no, but but, but I. Where are you going to go? You. You're already home. Sorry. <laughs> but I agree with you with the concept that uh, I too spent a lot of time talking to various family members, saying like. Do you really need to go to X, Y, or Z? Can't you just stay home? Yeah. Right. Uh, but so, okay, so we're talking about a, uh, a New Jersey intellectual property attorney um, who is now facing uh, criminal charges for allegedly holding a, an acoustic concert of Pink Floyd's greatest hits at his home uh, that eventually drew about 30 people to his property and, and, and violated uh, New Jersey's various uh, 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 social distancing restrictions. This has it all. I mean, it's topical because of coronavirus, but also thank you for selecting a New Jersey-based story for me. Sure, and, uh, I mean, why, one for me. an IP attorney. It's like, Bill, we yeah. hit our like, magic story that has all the things we want. I well, know. I was, when, when, when these you know, state and local you know, sheltering orders started to come down, I inevitably started to think about who would defy them and what would those defiances look like? And this is Did quite you the guess colorful. Pink Floyd? Yeah. I didn't, but I'm I'm happy to learn more about it. So this uh Garden State resident, uh John Malgen, uh who's the, the namesake owner of the Malgen Law Group, uh yeah. was charged on Saturday with uh reckless endangerment, disorderly conduct, and violating the state's emergency orders in connection with uh, a a party concert. I don't know what we want to term it uh, at his home in Rumson, New Jersey, on Saturday. Um, he he was uh, charged with jamming too hard. Let's just call it what it is. He was charged with he being was, too cool. <laughs> he was noodling too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so um, charges are also expected against a number of the partygoers who uh, went to this event and then resisted police efforts to break it up. Um, I'll just I'll, I'll start us off with a quote from the New Jersey Attorney General. Quote, 
When people like the partiers in Rumson flout orders and show disrespect and hostility to police officers, they not only put themselves and others immediately involved in peril, they risk inciting others to engage in such irresponsible and dangerous behavior. Honestly, the world is upside down because this is like what the classic plot of cops come in and break up a party for the high school kids. And now it's the parents of the high school kids that are the problem. Right. John uh, John Malgin is a 54-year-old. Um, and uh, so so here, here's how it sort of went down. So um, uh, he, he was allegedly performing these songs on Facebook Live, but apparently doing so on his front porch. Um, that of course, I mean, of course, uh, drew in-person fans from from the you know his friends and neighbors, and people were showing up with folding chairs, and eventually the oh, group boy. the group grew to about thirty people, um, and apparently they were not keeping the uh, recommended safe distances. So um, the police show up to to I guess break this up. I don't know who narked on the event or if the police just saw it on Facebook Live. Um, Very unchill, in my opinion, unchill, but whatever. But the 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 the, uh, the statement from the Rumson police <laughs> that they posted apparently on their Facebook page is spectacular. Quote, when we informed everyone that they must leave in accordance with Governor Murphy's executive order regarding these so-called corona parties, oh, we boy. were met with well wishes of F the police and welcome to Nazi Germany from this group of 40 to 50 year old adults, adults in all caps. Uh the Rumson Police Department takes no enjoyment in ruining anyone's fun, exclamation point. However, we all have a responsibility to take this pandemic seriously and adhere to the social distancing requirement. <laughs> well, first of all, these these people are mistaken. F the Police is an NWA song that is not a Pink Floyd song. Common, <laughs> common misconception among a lot of people. Uh, also, not to get, I don't want to veer too far into class warfare, but you said the guy was 54 years old. This is some, or generational warfare, I suppose. This is, this is some, this is some real boomer behavior. I'll just say it. I'll just, is, I'll just, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. This is boomer stuff. But apparently, yeah. okay, so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave us with this. Um, that, as I mentioned at the up top, uh, uh, Maljan is not going to be the only person uh, who, who was charged here. Apparently, the guy who made the, uh, the Nazi Germany comment was also charged with disorderly <laughs> conduct and disturbing the peace, and they are trying to identify other people who were there. So um, we will uh, we will see what happens with the uh, the the rowdy adults in uh, Rumson, New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, does I think it goes without saying, like we're doing our job. All three of us, our producer Steve, all of us are in our apartments. We're not out doing this stuff. It's not our generation, well, guys. Well, that's, 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 that's true, um, but I do just want to say before we, before we cut out of here, I do wish you were here. Great. Perfect. That's a great place to end the show today. <laughs> Love Thanks it. for bringing that story, Bill. <laughs> See you again next week, guys. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Bye. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Suzanne Moniak, and contributing reporters are basically everyone in our newsroom. We've talked about so many lawsuits related to coronavirus and other coverage that you should just head over to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast and find all their great reporting there. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. Thanks and see you again next week.